Shannon Tipton here, and welcome to the Learning Rebels Coffee Chat, where all the cool L&D peeps hang out. While you're here, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future chats. Today, the cool kids are defining instructional design. Many moons ago, I surveyed the training people out there in the universe and asked them to self-identify their job titles. When all was said and done, there were 93 different variances of L&D titles. No wonder it's hard for this industry to get all on one page. We can't even decide what to call ourselves, much less have a consensus on the needed skills that should underpin our profession. And in today's chat, we will be discussing the nuances of the different roles and responsibilities of instructional designers. So the big question on the table today is, what is an instructional designer and what skills do we need to bring the position into the future? So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, once again, welcome everyone to today's coffee chat, the Learning Rebels coffee chat, which happens every other Friday. And today we are talking about defining instructional design. And I am really curious about your thoughts on this topic. And first off, what I would like you to do, if this is your first chat with us, please tell us in the chat itself to let us know so we can provide you with the nice, warm Learning Rebels welcome. And thank you for being here. Lori, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Benita, thank you. Meg, thank you for showing up. Samantha. Nice for you to join us. And Evan, oh, lots of first timers here today. Look at all this. That's nice. Yeah. Maureen, my cousin's husband makes snow sculptures. No way. A giant pineapple in the parking lot. Now, is that an oxymoron or is that ironic that it's a pineapple in snow? No, because that's like the sign on the Charleston flag or something. It's like a welcome pineapple. So he made the giant Charleston pineapple. He has like architectural plans at his house for depending on the type of snow and how much he lives outside of DC he makes different sculptures but they were in Charleston thinking they'd get away from the cold and instead it snowed there <laughs> you know you you just sometimes you, it just doesn't go in your in your direction it just doesn't all right well thank you all of you uh, first timers for joining us today happy to have you here here's my first question for you what I'd like you to do is in the chat, share with us your actual job role title. What's your title? Throw that in the chat for me. If you are a, a consultant, then that's fine. You know, just put consultant. But what is your actual title? Let's see. Look at all of this. We have, let me scroll up here. Okay, we've got a contractor. Design Manager, Training and Enablement Manager, Senior Instructional Designer, Instructional Designer, Learning Experience Architect, E-Learning Manager, Consultant, Instructional Designer, Training and Development Manager, Learning Experience Designer, Instructional Design Team Lead. Oh, Sherry, nice to see you, Founder. Learning Experience Architect, Policy Administrator. Very interesting. Hence is my point. When we talk about instructional designers, look at what we have. 
you know, and maybe your main job role is not necessarily instructional design in of itself. But I think this goes to show the differences that we have in our job roles. A number of years ago, and I could not find it, I wish I could, I took a survey, and this was probably about five or six years ago. I took a survey of different people's job titles. And in that survey, there were over 70 different job titles for what we do. Seven zero. So we cannot get consistent on what we call ourselves, much less what we do. And that is the tough part of what we do. And subsequently, I think this is what leads to a perceived perception of, you know, anyone can do this. Oh, it's just training, right? Here, go off and make this PowerPoint pretty and anybody can do that, right? And so I think this is where this perception comes into play. And I'm curious, does anyone want to share their thoughts about the perception of instructional design today or why we might have this inconsistency in role? You know, where does learning design fit in? So let me kick off today's chat with asking you that. What are your feelings about your role in instructional design today in 2023? Shannon, this is Fatsna. If it's okay, could we take a step back? I asked in the chat mm -hmm. what industries we work in or what environments. I feel that adds to the conversation because higher ed is going to have a slightly different flavor than someone working in the corporate world. That's just my experience based upon my different roles over the years. Absolutely. Great question. So in the chat, are you profit, nonprofit, higher ed? Where do you sit? I think it's interesting that Fatina brought that up because I do work in higher ed and yet the department, the HR department decided to go through reorg and they want to have a learning and organizational development department, which I'm a part of, be a center of excellence. So I think FATNA brings something up that's both maybe been systemic within higher ed as far as perhaps a bucking of want to accept or envelope itself into like maybe what we see in corporate environments. And yet I'm here and I get to experience and I'm riding this tide with my new team on this reorganization and the challenges that comes with it because I think it was to step towards more of things and philosophies and structures that you see inside of for-profit. And obviously there's still some underpinnings of some of the structures with that had previously existed in higher ed. So just as an anecdotal side note to Fatna's question. And I think that's a, a great layer, a great layer to it. And I'm seeing a variety here of mostly corporate, it seems as though we've got some government work technology, healthcare, nonprofit, healthcare, for-profit, higher ed. And yes, I believe where we sit does make a difference around what we do. So whether you work in corporate or if you work in healthcare or nonprofit, for-profit, in essence, our jobs still at its core are the same. We, we have essentially the same goals, don't we? in my view, and your view might be slightly different. For me, being in this particular industry, being in learning and development, be it instructional design or not, 
I've always seen this as being an advocate for the people, right? How can we help people be smarter, better, faster than they were yesterday? And that to me is the core in my heart. And so I'm curious for you, what is the big purpose for what you do? So if you think about, I serve whom so that they can do what? So that they become better? What is your big purpose when you think about your role as an instructional designer within your organization? How we support individuals in their development as well as to the benefit of the company? Absolutely. So business is the North Star, isn't it? You know, helping businesses succeed. And so the question is, what do you see as your big purpose as an instructional designer? We're talking about instructional designers today. And so let's put it into that context. So what do you see as your big purpose? Who do you serve and why do you serve them? For me, and I am re-entering the instructional design field after a little bit of a, a break in other training and learning development areas. But for me, we are serving, I'm serving my internal staff and supporting them as we're going through some reorganization and restructuring. And at the heart of my desire to be an instructional designer has always been, how do I make you more productive? How do I help you do your job? How do I take the information you need and make it digestible so that you can apply it? The end of the day, for me, it's all about my learner. What does my learner need and how do I make my learner successful? Excellent. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else want to contribute? What's your big purpose for being an instructional designer in your organization or in your industry? So Jen, thank you in the chat. My purpose is to provide the most effective education to our associates so they can provide high quality, safe care to their patients and provide it in the most efficient way possible. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Anyone else? So I work for a international financial institution that serves military. Oh, okay. Families and service members. And so we have what are called financial advisors that work obviously directly with prospective and existing current clients, but help design training for these financial advisors so they can A, grow their business. And to me, what's more important is they can serve military families and serve the community and contribute in significant, powerful ways. And I totally agree with everyone else's comments and Shannon, your points, not that you need my validation. No, anything, no, no. But, you know, that when I think of instructional design, I think of literally developing the best possible instructional materials that are appropriate to the topic that are appropriate to the outcomes or objectives and that the media is appropriate the medium to meeting those objectives outcomes designing the best possibilities and overall i think instructional design is more of an experience and a journey than it is you know a one time done and gone that's my two cents anyway. Well, and I appreciate that. And I, I believe that you're absolutely right. I don't think an instructional designer's job is ever done, is it? There's always the refresh of something. There's always the investigation of something. There's the evaluation. There is then the changes. There's always something that's happening. 
And there used to be a day where you could create a course as an instructional designer. You can create a course or a program and it could sit on a shelf for a while. And those days are gone. So if you aren't constantly refreshing what's sitting on your shelves today, that they are, you know, growing digital dust bunnies, then we need to stop doing that because, you know, information becomes antiquated so fast just because of the speed where people can find new information. So it's very easy for someone to look at a piece of content and go, wow, that's old, that's antiquated. You know, so there's always something that is happening. You know, I think it's also instructional design, for me at least, is finding that middle ground between, and I know a lot of people hate this term because it's so vague and overused, but best practices or foundational core principles of learning, of cognition, of design, but also working in, as you just said, these modern methods for how people learn and consume information. And you said like constantly refreshing it. And I think, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Fajna? Fatina. Fatina, thank you. I didn't mean any disrespect there. To write in the comments, you know, that, like you just said, Shannon, refreshing and updating because how we, I hate to use this word, consume or find maybe is a better word, information. Mm -hmm. You said there's a bunch of new different ways. And that's where I think, you know, finding that kind of middle ground between working in that and working in some fundamental core practices that this is how evidence-based learning, as she said, this is how we know people learn best. You know, I think of it as my job to help them learn best. Right. And design training, in my case, that helps them learn best. So I'll shut up now. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, that's okay. Pop in anytime. And I think the word that you used as a replacement for best practice, I would use evidence based practice. You know, that's what we're striving for, right? And this is what we can prove works well. And this is evidence based. So I appreciate that you used that term as well. So, Erica, I see your hand. Thanks, Shannon. You know, there's a so many great comments inside of the chat as well for all of us to consume. Three things that came top of mind for me is that there's been a a huge shift and I think an important shift to recognize that the learner is in the center of why we do what we do. However, we don't create training for the sake of creating training. If there's not some sort of pain point then training shouldn't exist. So to the ideas of like training ends up becoming a default to be able to just Mm -hmm. be a push of information, but not doing then what it's supposed to do because it's trying to get from a current state to a future state. And Mm -hmm. overall, it should be about impacting behaviors that then impact the job, the company, because that's who we serve. I'm sure there's people here who might be contentious on that. I'd love to have the offline friendly debate, but ultimately the client is going to be our company or our organization that we work for. We want to design those. So design thinking puts the learner in the middle though, of when we're going to construct the design of the learning. And then lastly, This idea that anybody can do it, and there was a couple of comments also about how technology has made things seem like things can go quicker, and then that means that stuff can be spit out faster. I think the key element here that Fetina brought up first is this idea of evidence-based. 
and that somebody who says I've been creating training for a really long time, but they haven't had the opportunity to been supported with the scaffolding of the evidence by either taking, you know, programs that are certification programs or going into a master's program. It allows them, though, to have too much gap. They may have some really great on-the-job experience, but they still then have gaps because they haven't been able to combine that idea about, well, what is really evidence-based instructional design? And so those were those three things that came top of mind as we've been having a discussion so far. Excellent points. And if we were to unpack that, there is, you know, human-centered design, which has been a while, and... I was looking on my bookshelf and I have an ATD or back then ASTD handbook from the 1970s sitting on my bookshelf. And one chapter within that book is human-centered design. They called it learner-centered design, if I, if I recall. And so the concept, while we treat it as something new and eureka-like, has actually been around for longer than a lot of us has been in this career. And so now it's just repackaging it, right? And also to your point is that as we keep learners in the center of what we do, the North Star again is the business. They have business goals. They have big carry audacious goals as we talked about, you know, on our last chat that they need to achieve and people need to help them get there. So we are the through point. We're the thread that pulls through, that helps people be successful, that helps business be successful. Now, here's my question to some of you out there is some of you, which I noticed in when we asked you what your titles were, said that you were instructional designers. So you are an instructional designer. Now, some instructional designers don't have control over that. Something gets handed down the pike. A business sponsor, several layers up, has a training request that someone has approved and someone else has looked at, and then it falls on your desk. So what are the steps that we could take? Because we can't, in some cases, you cannot go all the way back and say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with any business goal, so I'm not going to do it. What's the conversation like now? Hashtag just asking. I think that's where then a lot of us become stuck in a bad, I'm going to call echo chamber, because Mm -hmm. that's where then we can fall prey to having the external forces at work that pull us away from the foundational comprehension, understanding, and practices that we know that we're supposed to bring to the table. And yet, as much as the business is our is using your terminology, the North Star, it can also be the business <laughs> that is usually pulling us backwards. <laughs> right. Until we're at the point where like all I do is just create things that look pretty to try to communicate something that, you know, should have been about a communication plan that should have come maybe from, you know, marketing or comms or public relations. So I don't for any stretch of a minute or a second fall under the belief that we can stand steadfast on our Plymouth Rock and fight the forces of evil when those forces are cutting our paychecks, whether we're internal or external. Right. 
So then this becomes a very precarious dance. Absolutely. Because we can't say then no, especially if the client is going to be a, a high level representative, if they're telling us they think that they need training. I think maybe the best that we can do is if we have been able to do some of our own development and performance-based coaching and trying to figure out how we could try to coach them through the request to see if we can kind of evil genius to a point of like <laughs> figuring out, right, if this is really going to be an official training experience or can we give them something that they think that they want they want to label it as a training mm -hmm. okay whatever do I need to die on that sword but you know was I able to try to provide an educational opportunity in that exchange meeting them where they're at trying to use their language their terminology not forcing mine on them mm -hmm. and trying to get them to see if they can move closer to some of the things that are a part of the value add that I bring to the table and why they even have me there in the first place. Right. Thank you. And we can only do what we can do, but we can do it to the best of our abilities. That's what's critical, right? And so, Fatna, I see your hand. What would you like to add? So adding on to that, that was a great start, Erica. Thank you so much for that. From the higher education perspective, one of the things that I do is remind my faculty as I'm working with them, I am a guest on your course. You own this content, you own the experience. I'll give you the suggestions and the best practices. And if they say no, I'll say, okay, I'm still going to pin this off to the side because nine times out of 10, when we come back to the student evaluations and reminding them that students are their customers, and seeing that feedback, then we have to revisit those suggestions and conversations. So it is challenging. It is frustrating. At the same time, part of my job is to help educate part of my clientele, which are my faculty, on these best practices because they don't necessarily have the background necessary. Oh, and I think that that's great. I think part of what we can do is help bring others with us. Right. And so maybe at that moment, like you said, I'm just a guest here. So maybe at that moment, it's saying I'm here to observe and to help move things along. Although we can offer support and guidance, you know, help lift as we move along. So I think that that's a wonderful point, And I appreciate that. What Anna's placed into the chat <laughs> what Anna's placed into the chat is a, a Miro board. And last year, I always want to say earlier, but it was actually last year. It's like, holy cow, we're in 2023 now. In 2022, we went through an exercise. The coffee chat people went through an exercise of creating a list of what smart trainers should know. And I popped that chart in the last email that you all received from me. And now what we're going to do is I want to take that same sort of format and discuss what instructional designers should know. What should we know to be better at our jobs? If we think about skill set, what should we know? What should we be able to do? But also competency-wise, what behaviors should we be displaying? What behaviors should other people be observing from instructional designers? How can we maybe not necessarily through hard skills, but through some 
core foundational skills be able to do, you know? So there's a difference between a hard skill, like being able to write learning objectives and a soft skill, what I like to call core skills of maybe active listening. So I would like us to break this down as the next part of our exercise today in this chat. And what you see, and hopefully everybody will be able to access the Miro board, but let me share my screen just in case, and you can contribute outside. So if you can't contribute, you can contribute in the chat and on can place your comments in the appropriate spot on the mural board if you can't open it up based on whatever firewalls you might have for your organization. So now think of it this way, across the top, let's place some headers for key skills or competencies. And then below, let's put some supporting skills or some supporting topics. And let me reintroduce you to the chart about what smart people should, what smart people, what smart trainers, <laughs> what smart trainers should know in general. Now, this is not going to be comprehensive, of course, but this is right off the top of our heads. Topics like learning science, instructional design, training delivery, learning technology, evaluation and assessment, knowledge management, business acumen, and then a host of others. And so this is where the different categories for what a smart L&D professional, if you will, should know. And so now if we break this down or rather funnel down to instructional designers and what they should know in order to be better at what they do. And so it gives you a little bit of time to think about what skills do you think instructional designers should have? So we can put that into the chat right now. Negotiation consulting skills. Absolutely. What else we got? Action like a consultant, not like an order taker, right? Do you want fries with that? Listening to learn and not to solve. I think that's a really important one, right? So what else are we seeing? We think human-centered design, learning technologies, learning science. And I think that there is something to be said about yeah, data analytics. Absolutely. And I think data analytics becomes part of like a core, a main skill that we could be using, right? The ability to analyze data, to do something with data, to be able to use data. Yeah. In layman terms, to be able to use it and use it to support whatever it is that you're doing. Absolutely. Survey writing. Oh, that's a good one. And we are really not very good at that sometimes. As a matter of fact, we're going to do a learn something new here in a little bit about writing survey questions. We did one last year about writing test questions. So I think doing survey questions is appropriate. Learning myths, yes, to avoid. And I believe when I think about learning myths, what I think about is learning science is how understanding the research behind adult learning and not taking that research at face value. So when you think about learning myths, what are you doing? So if somebody told you that Bloom's taxonomy, we really should not be using Bloom's taxonomy when it comes to writing learning objectives, and you are a Bloom's taxonomy user, it's your job to go out there and find the research that supports one idea or the other, or what's the balance in between. I find with a lot of taxonomies like Bloom's taxonomy, there's truth in there. 
but how we use it has become skewed over the years, right? So what's the research that supports or debunks what it is we do? I think we could do a lot more of that. And so now what's important, how do we talk about it in the future? So again, I think there's something within the instructional design job description, if you will, that talks about being good stewards of the profession. When we have, you know, that HR person who means well and says, we need everything aligned with learning styles, then our job is to come back and say, well, you know, the research on that, and it's not to call them out and say, you don't know what you're doing. It's the research on that supports X, Y, Z. And that's being good stewards of what we do and helping bring people through. I think that's an important point, Shannon. I think steward is such a fabulous, empowering, and strong word for us to keep in mind because I've only recently obtained my graduate level certificate in instructional design, even though I've been doing training for over 20 years. And yet I don't feel for a minute that I should then turn around and chastise or try to hold myself up as like a better bastion of information or that I'm better at it than you, because now we come off as elitist. We need to be able to, I think, hold a balance between, I want to help to guide you and not make that person feel like you have no business being here. You shouldn't be doing this. Get out of this industry because I'm now all of a sudden a gatekeeper. Let us please embrace them with open arms. Let us not fall back on our laurels and suggesting that we know better because whatever that degree is or however long we've been doing it, let us say we're stewards to help usher in the newer generation, however we want to define that generation, and help to guide them so that they can improve their skills, improve the value add that they bring to their organization, and get them to the place where they can continue to educate those who are decision makers who say that they want training to be able to communicate a change within the organizational structure that maybe could have been a company-wide memo. I have said this over and over again, when it comes to some courses that we create, a lot of them are just a checklist, you know, screaming to get out or an email screaming to get out. And I think that part of the realization of that is, again, is helping others understand, helping others within the organization understand the why behind what we do, you know, and having those consultative discussions. And I'm seeing this in the chat, too, a lot about having those consultative conversations. And I believe at all levels of what we do, instructional designers, learning experience designers, architects, L&D leaders, managers, directors, regardless of where you are at on the hierarchy of your organization, we can still have conversations outward that help people understand that training is not and is almost not ever the answer in of itself, right? And that it becomes part of a holistic solution. So putting together an onboarding program, revising your onboarding program is great, but it means nothing unless you fix your hiring process. 
those things go in tandem. And it's important that we have conversations or have the ability to have conversations, if nothing else, but to be able to learn how to ask why. And I believe that there's a skill around that particular style of questioning that we could hone, right? I'm interested, what else, Brent, I see you joining us today. So I'm, I'm happy to have you here. So, you know, Brent, I, I know that this is a topic that you and I have personally had discussions about. So do you have anything that you would like to add to the conversation? You're not supposed to do that to me on a Friday. <laughs> what are friends for? Now I'm just listening in to all the fabulous conversation and you're right. It all rings very true to, I think, many conversations that we've had. <laughs> Truth. Uh, yeah. I'd venture to say, uh, which conversation might you be referring to? <laughs> well, we've always had conversations about the instructional designer role and their purpose within organizations. And sometimes, to Erica's point, we have a tendency to elevate what we do uh, yes. when the organization doesn't want us to elevate what we do. You know me, Shannon. So just don't feel bad to just shut me up at any moment because I could just kind of <laughs> go off on the topic, but I'll try to keep it short. Instructional design within the corporate space anyways, I think is what is an element of what we do and it's how we get the work done, but the work that the organization sees as the output is not instructional design. And I think that's where the disconnect often lies. When, if we try to avoid the, the usual terms, when companies go to HR and say, we need somebody for the training department, the training department knows to look for somebody with instructional design skills, but that executive level or that manager did not know anything about instructional design and quite frankly, doesn't care. They have goals and business goals and business objectives that need to be met. And I think it behooves us all to keep the instructional design specific conversations to forums like this. Yes. And not expose how the sausage is made to the <laughs> business world because and I know some of you might be rolling your eyes, maybe that are new to the industry. I know you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you're excited to tell everybody about all the things that you've learned about instructional design and how excited you are for your career. But let me just tell you, after 30-plus years of being in the industry, nobody cares. So we care. I, we care. I we shouldn't care. Say, let me clarify. Nobody outside of our industry cares. And if you run into somebody that does, that's great. And if you have a manager that really loves to hear you go on and on and talk about instructional design, that's great too, because it's very rare. So consider yourself extremely lucky. The rest of us have had far too many experiences where they just want the job done. They just want you to create the training and they don't want to hear about why it can or can't be done because of this, that, or the other instructional objective that's not clear or can't be done or whatever types of reasons you run into. So mm -hmm. we can't make them learn what we do. And there's no reason to, we just have to clearly understand what their expectations are and take the mumbo jumbo 
in inside baseball terms out of the conversation and bring them here to places like this with Shannon, where we all understand what we're all saying to each other mm-hmm. and uh, cut that loose. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree, Brent. Even in a team, you might have somebody who's looking at you who's supposedly your training manager, and they'll be like, and? And I I had a soul-crushing experience where I was so excited that I learned about something that I wanted to integrate into my preliminary work before I get into design. And I was like, oh, I'm going to tell my manager, and he's going to be so excited that I'm adding this additional value. And he was just like, okay, whatever, but I still, you know, we still need to get the stuff done in two weeks. So can you still get stuff done in two weeks? And I'm like, yes. And I've just learned whatever I've learned that I feel is, again, that evidence-based, it makes sure that I'm going through the right process so that I'm doing right, just do it. And don't expect fanfare, especially if you're learning something new, unless unfortunately it's a buzzword and they think it's something cool and they want to hear about it, like augmented reality or virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And that goes down a whole other wormhole of it's not the tools it's not the shiny thing is the appropriate term it is and i I, yeah and i think we have all been on that soul crushing end of the spectrum we've all had those experiences and i think sherry made a really good point in the chat she talks here about part of the disconnect is in the title itself and the wide interpretation of what it means. That's where we started this conversation today. And some get caught up on design and thinking it's all about visual design and making things pretty. And that is so true. Sherry? On the other end of the spectrum, I found that people think that a learning experience designer is somebody who makes motion graphics and only does development. And it's just, I think as an industry, we need to really fight to educate people about what we do. I also have had a number of people ask me, well, you're just basically a technical writer. Oh, yes. No, 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 no. And really, I think it's up to us as an industry to redefine what we do and try to educate people about that. I have dealt with a lot of managers from training managers even who don't even know what it means. They just have a requisition on their team and they feel compelled to feel it. Sometimes just definitely not with the right people. I can tell you without being too obnoxious that I have very recently been dealing with a team of people who were subject matter experts in what they did and they were just unceremoniously moved onto the design team and now they're the instructional design team. And oh my Lanta, it is not pretty. And so they've called me in to try to unweave their weave and help form their strategy for upskilling everyone and really setting the strategy for the department because it was just a functional manager, excellent manager, just didn't know anything about our uh, world. Yes. Oh my gosh, if I had a dime for every time an organization turns a subject matter expert into a trainer and then left them hanging. That's the thing, right? I feel bad for them. I really do. Just creating and churning out stuff that has the house that Jack built. It's like, oh, you want that? Okay, I'm going to add it in. Whether or not there's any real purpose or meaning. 
Exactly. And this is coming from myself. I don't know how many of you started your careers as L&D professionals or in education. I did not. I have a business background. I have an operational background. And I went into training because I was you know, tired of looking at spreadsheets and I wanted to help people instead. That's the short story of it. And that's where I ended up. However, I was there on my own trying to figure it out on my own. Right. And thank goodness I was interested in learning more. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. So again, it, it is about being helpful and informative about what we do. And we've all seen those job descriptions on LinkedIn where Brent and I are in another group together. And I shared it there where it was a job description for a training person that literally had 40 bullets in it. 40. And it's like, clearly you have no idea what you're looking for. You know, you're looking for the unicorn or you just threw stuff on paper, hoping that somebody met half of what you were looking for. And I absolutely agree with you, Sherry, that we've got to do a better job of educating organizations about what we do. And to Brent's point, though, is that they don't know they don't care However, they care about what their VP of marketing does. They care about what their VP of finance does. It's our job to help them understand a little bit more about what we do. And there we have it. And we are at the top of the hour, believe it or not. And we have a really good list here happening on our Miro board. And this stays open. So you guys can have a thought about everything we discussed today and add it to this board because I'm going to reorganize this information and I'm going to send it out to the greater good based on comments that are in the chat, based on what we have on our Miro board and upon listening to the recording after we're all through here and structure it in such a way that you all can make use of it after we're done. So please make a copy of the link or just keep this tab open on your computers and continue to add to this because I really want to help us move this particular position forward and create a greater understanding for it. So thank you all. Hopefully you all have good plans for the weekend. I hope you do. Uh, anybody want to share? What is it that you're doing this weekend? I know I'm going to be glued to my TV. I am watching football games. I don't know about anybody else. Trivia night tonight. Trivia night. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, everyone, for hanging with us for another Learning Rebels Coffee Chat. Well, there you have it. Or maybe not. I don't think the definition of an instructional designer has been solidified through this conversation. But the conversation was robust about the direction we need to take. I appreciated Brent's take that the business doesn't care about what our formal title is or what the definition of the role should be. They simply want results and amen to that. However, a key takeaway is that we need to be able to articulate the art and science behind instructional design. The business doesn't need to know how the sausage is made, but someone has to know Someone has to know the science between the combination of flavor, salt, and fat. So where does this leave the learning and development industry? 
Well, we clearly need to be better stewards of the occupation. When the business says, I don't care, make it pretty, our job is to say yes. And how about if we ensure the exchange of knowledge too? And when they say, make sure this course touches everyone's learning styles, our job is to say, great, I think you mean you want me to make sure everyone has the best chance of learning from the content. We don't have to be pious about what we know. We just need to make sure that we have people on the ride with us. Now, for those of you who are curious about the results of our shared Miro board covering the skills needed for instructional designers, the link is in the show notes below for you to check out. So there you have it. You want to join us live? And you know you do. Go on over to learningrebels.com and check out the events page and sign on up. In the meantime, stay curious, be rebellious, and take over the world. Bye for now. Thank you.